In verse 15, last time we saw, if you love me. We saw the first part of that. We will this time focus on the me, who the me is, and the fact that if the first part of this sentence is true, this this condition is true, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Now, this second part of this sentence, this one simple short verse in John 14, 15, this second part is that part that no one actually really in the Christian world wants to keep or wants to follow. They would love to focus on the love part, but despise the commandments part of this one sentence. But we can't do that. It's embedded in the very single verse and single sentence. It's right there. There's no way to separate these and avoid the issues. But there are many detractors and many false teachers who want to distract us and show us a different way. And the different way is the way of the false gospel. Because if anyone says that Christ expected obedience to his commandments, immediately they will rise up with the false charge, with the slander, with the blasphemy, that we are legalists. We are Pharisees. We seek for works righteousness. We are teaching salvation by good deeds. Therefore, we are wrong. We are false teachers. However, that is not the biblical perspective. If we are false teachers for teaching obedience, then all of the prophets were false teachers for teaching obedience. If we are false teachers for teaching obedience, then all of the apostles are false teachers for teaching obedience. If we are false teachers for teaching obedience, then Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is a false teacher for teaching obedience. Because he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is fundamental. It is a fundamental characteristic of the Christian life. Understood properly. Not obedience to be saved, but obedience as evidence that we are saved and we are seeking to conform our life to the life of Christ. That is the key. No one is teaching, no one is believing, like the Pharisees of old taught, that obedience to the commandments leads to eternal life, that that is what we must present to God for eternal life. Actually, our accusers are the real Pharisees. Our accusers are the real Pharisees. They are the ones who desire to have obedience to whatever they have in their mind as their way of salvation. Because if they truly believed in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again on their behalf as a substitute for their sins, then they would long to conform their life to the life of Christ. They would have that desire. It is intrinsic, it is innate, it is a part of what God does miraculously in the dead, insensitive, hardened human heart. He changes that heart and makes it sensitive, tender to the things of God. He takes out the heart of stone and gives it a heart of flesh. That's what God does. When he does so, he produces a desire, a longing, a love for him to obey his commandments. That is the true scenario of what the Bible is teaching and what we seek to teach. We seek to teach this very same truth. Also, one more thing that false teachers do, and this often happens not only generally in Christianity, but this happens in modern Reformed churches, modern Calvinistic churches, churches that are following the modern theologians, the modern pastors, they have seized upon a historic term called Christian liberty, Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And they have hijacked the true meaning of that word. The true meaning of that word can be found in the Westminster 
Confession of Faith of 1647, and also in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. They have chapters explaining what true Christian liberty is, wherein they say that it is freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from ultimate eternal judgment. These are the ways in which we have become free because we are in Christ. But then they also take pains to say, they also take pains to say, this does not mean that we therefore can and should live the way we used to live, living in sin, living in disobedience. On the contrary, they teach that we are desirous now to live a holy life, to live a godly life. Those confessions in their chapters on Christian liberty explain that very truth. So we are seeking to be just like them. And in fact, the Puritans and the pilgrims in past centuries who were in Europe and who came to this nation, to America, to colonize America, they believe in what we're saying. They believe in obedience as evidence of a changed life. They believe in obedience and conformity to that very fact. And the proof of that is evidenced in many of the capitals or city centers or city halls across the nation. And for that matter, across the world in nominally Christian countries. What do they do? They have a monument or they erect a pillar with the Ten Commandments in them or on them. That's what they do. Why do they do that? Why did the pilgrims and the Puritans do so in the United States? They did so because they believed in obedience. And obedience, not just for the Christian church, but all of society, should conform to the Ten Commandments. That's what they believed. That's why they are scattered throughout the countryside. That's why they are there. So if we are Pharisees, that means the pilgrims and the Puritans were Pharisees, and they are all in hell which are the ancestors of the modern, false, reformed churches and the people who are attending those churches. They're saying their own ancestors are in hell because they were legalistic Pharisees teaching obedience to commandments of God. You see how ridiculous all of this is and how destructive it is. It's destructive to the gospel and it is also destructive to our churches and destructive to our societies to believe any of that nonsense. So, keeping that in mind, that that's what we're dealing with when we talk about commandments and obedience. We have to understand everything according to God's holy word. The holy scriptures right here. Keep that in mind. So last time we spoke of if you love. Let's pick it up with me. Who is the me that we should love? Who is the me that we should love? It is the Lord Jesus. And this attachment or this love of him is a love that cannot be a compromising love. It has to be in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, him alone, and it cannot be a double-minded love. It cannot be a double-tongued love. It cannot be a forked-tongued kind of love. It has to be a real, sincere, genuine love of Him. And it has to also be a full love of Him. We either love Him or we hate Him. We either love Christ or we hate Christ. It cannot be any mixture. There's no admixture of 99% Christ, 1% something else or someone else. It cannot be that. It has to be 100% devotion, love to Jesus Christ. John 21, 15 to 17. John 21, 15. Peter, he stumbled. He stumbled 
And he sinned, and now Christ teaches him and exposes and brings forward his love, specific love for Christ in comparison to others or other things. In comparison to others or other things. John 21, 15. 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Do you love me more than these? And Simon Peter's answer is yes. Yes, all three times. He loves Christ. His full devotion, undistracted devotion, love is for Christ. More than these, verse 15 says. And whether that these includes the fish and fishing in the previous narrative or other people, other men, it doesn't matter who the these are because it has to be only Christ. Only Jesus Christ. Whether it's things or people or even both, it has to be fully and only Christ. And in Simon Peter's situation, the proof that he loved Christ would be that he would tend or shepherd, pastor the sheep of Christ. That he would be a faithful under-shepherd, shepherding, pastoring, tending, feeding the flock of Christ on the earth. That was the proof in that case. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. Now for all of us. Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24. Having just spoken about treasures, treasures on earth, wealth on earth, and in the subsequent paragraph, verses 25 to 34, He will speak of food, clothing, food and clothing, and the daily provisions that we need. In the middle of this discourse, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. The things of the world, the mammon, the possessions of the world cannot be loved by us. We cannot and should not love those possessions. If we do, then we hate God. If we do, we hate him. Chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. 10, 34 to 39. Matthew 10:34 Our relations our relatives our family 10:34 Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth I did not come to bring peace but a sword For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. We cannot love 
our families, our relatives, more than Christ. It is impossible for true love to exist if that happens. And in recent days, this being January 2022, in recent days, it, during the Christmas season, do you know what often happens? It, and especially on Christmas Day, however we might celebrate Christmas or not celebrate Christmas, on Christmas Day, one has said that people, there are a lot of Christians who are Christians twice a year, right? They're Christians on Christmas Day, they'll go to church, and then they'll go to church on Easter Sunday. Christmas Day and Easter Sunday. So they're Christians twice a year. And many people think that's fine and good. They're happy and content with that, and that, that God has no further expectations of them. But I submit to you that those people are often not Protestants. They are Catholics. Catholics are often that way, not Protestants. Protestants won't even go to church on Christmas Day because most Protestant churches have canceled services on Christmas Day under the pretext of it's a time for family. It's a time for family. So family first, God last on Christmas Day or around Christmas. They don't go to services. They are focused on family activities on Christmas Day. It's worse among Protestants than it is among Catholics. If we're talking about the twofers going twice a year, it's worse among us. But Jesus says you cannot love your family. You cannot love your family above me. In fact, in Luke 14, 14, 25 to 27, he says you have to hate your family. He doesn't say it in the way he says it in Matthew. He says you have to hate your family. 14, 25, Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25 to 27. He means that we must hate sin. Whenever sin rises up and seeks to put a wedge between Christ and us, then that must be rejected. Even if that sin is in our family, And within us, even if that sin is in our very person, we must hate it to love Christ. This is what he expects of us. This kind of utter and full devotion to him. The Apostle Paul lived this way himself. The Apostle Paul explains in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We read 3, 7 to 11. In Philippians chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, he warns us against false teachers, and then he explains his own pedigree, because false teachers like to boast in their qualifications. They like to boast and talk about their qualifications. He then enumerates his own qualifications. Then we pick it up at verse 7. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but Rubbish, garbage, filth, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed 
to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The apostle says that in his own life, which shows he's not a hypocrite, he's not saying, do what I say, not as I do, like the Pharisees were. He lived this life. Everything that he used to value, verses 7 and 8, he now devalues them. He counts them but rubbish. He counts those things nothing in view of knowing Christ, of embracing Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ, being like Christ. That's all he wants in his life. He wants to do the will of Christ and only the will of Christ because he knows that is where eternal life is contained, in doing the will of Christ. Of Christ. First John 2. This is also to be true of us. First John, first John 2, 15 to 17. First John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever, remains forever. Doing God's will is evidence that the love of the Father is in us, verse 15. If we don't do the will of God, there is no eternal life. We will not remain or live forever. And the proof that we do live forever is that we have the love of the Father in us and we reject the world and the things in the world. The world and the things in the world. That is, we reject the people of the world because of their sins and reject the things of the world because the love of the things of the world and the people of the world because of their sins leads to death, leads to eternal death. We will not remain forever if we love them. Therefore, we must love Christ. Now, having said and shown that we must love Christ, and it's either love or hatred of Christ, what does it mean to follow Christ, to emulate Him, to love Him? He told us in John 13, 13, 12 to 17. John 13, 12. John 13, 12. And so, When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. If you do them. And what was it that he was exemplifying here in John 13? Exemplifying humility. If humility is not a characteristic of us, then there is no love of Christ. We have not come to know the true Christ and to follow him to repeat his example. If we call him teacher and Lord, we must have this kind of humility in us. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. If we love Christ, if we belong to Christ, if we know Christ, then the following will also be true. John 15, 1 to 8. John 15, 1 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He uses this analogy of a vineyard and the tree, the vine. And the father is the vine dresser. He is the pruner. He is the gardener. And when the father sees that there is a branch, a, a part that is not bearing fruit, what does the father do? He cuts it off of the vine, which is Christ. He cuts it off of the vine and he throws it away and they, the others, the workers, they take these dry, shriveled, unfruitful branches and throw them into the fire to get rid of them because they are useless. They throw them into the fire. But if there is fruit, and the fruit is there, why? Because it is a branch that is truly, rightfully attached to the vine, attached to Christ. And that fruitful branch bears much fruit, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we abide in him, we bear much fruit. What does it mean to abide in him then? People say, especially devotional books, and especially devotional books produced by women, they say, abide in Christ. We need to abide in him. They have hijacked this phrase. Hijack. A hijacker does not possess what he hijacks, right? He's a thief. And here we see in context what it means to abide. Verses 9 to 11. 9 to 11. Just as the Father has loved me and I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Abide in Christ equals what now? Obedience to his commandments. Abiding in Christ equals obedience to his commandments. He gave us that equation, or he gave us that if-then statement right here in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is what it means. Bear much fruit. And, verse 8, verse 8 says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. But wait a minute. I thought we were told that we don't need to prove to be disciples of Christ. I thought we were told that if someone names it, someone claims it, someone says, well, I'm a Christian, so how, who are you to challenge that assertion? If I say that I profess Christ, if I say I belong to Christ, if I say I am a Christian, who are you to challenge it? But this verse says it's necessary to prove it. It uses the word prove. It says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's necessary to prove it by the fruit. Matthew 7, 16. So then you will know them by their 
fruits. You will know them, Matthew 7, 16, by their fruits. You will know if they belong to Christ or not. Furthermore, let's look at a couple of passages in Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. As you're finding your way to Ephesians, the famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 is, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But verse 10 is talking about after conversion. Verses 8 and 9, pre-conversion, leading up to conversion. And verse 10, post-conversion. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk or live in them. Ephesians 2.10. Then what does that look like? Can we be more specific? Well, in relation to the person of Christ, yes. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. What kinds of sins are we talking about? 4, 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's the way of the Gentiles. That's the way we're not supposed to walk any longer, he said in verse 17. Why? Because of verses 20 to 24. But you did not learn Christ in this way. That means that when they heard the gospel of Christ, they did not learn in that preaching of the gospel to continue walking as they used to walk, verse 17, to continue in the futility of their mind, to continue being darkened in understanding, to continue to be ignorant, to continue to have a hardness of heart, to continue to be callous, insensitive, continue to practice sensuality, everything you want to do with your senses, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, whatever your senses want to do, you indulge in them, every kind of impurity with greediness. When the gospel was preached, those things were preached against. And that's why he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. If, if you heard him, have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. And what is it? What should we now embrace? Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now we are to lay aside. To lay aside is an analogy of clothing and dress. It's saying, whatever filthy garments you used to have, you need to lay them aside, put them aside, and wear clean, good garments, fragrant garments that are clean, not the filthy ones of sin. Lay them aside because that's the old man. That's the old way. That's the old self. That's being corrupted with the lusts of deceit, deceitful lusts of men, evil desires of men, deceitful, evil desires. Verse 22. And now it's time to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. 
Now it's time for the new man, the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created. The new man has been been created in the likeness of God. In what? In what way? Righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness and holiness of the truth. He continues to explain. We'll read into chapter 5. We'll see the kinds of sins we are continue, uh, to continue to reject. 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the, the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now chapter 5, how else? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Walk According to the love of Christ. In what way? And gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, are we supposed to also offer ourselves as a sacrifice? A fragrant aroma, not a stench. Not something that's uh, stinky and uh, smelly. Not like that but a fragrant, pleasant, soothing aroma to God. Are we not supposed to be the same? Yes. He's telling us to do that. Be imitators as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. Follow Him. Brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Further, verse 3, Ephesians 5, 3. But do not let immorality, which is speaking of sexual immorality or fornication, any kind of sexual sins. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. So the words we use, we have to make sure that they are biblical and godly words. And no coarse jesting, meaning dirty jokes, dirty jokes, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Why is this so important? That we understand this part, if we attach ourselves to Christ, if we say we belong to Christ, why is this so significant? Why is it so serious? Because of verse 5. 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's no eternal life. No eternal life. We will not enter the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's easy to be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You're good. All is good. God will take you just the way you are, just as I am, without one plea. That's the way they say it. You don't need to change a single thing if you believe in the gospel. Those are empty words of deception. 
And the, those who believe those words will receive the wrath of God because they are sons of disobedience. Disobedient sons. That's what they are. What should we do? Avoid them. Do not be partakers with them. Why? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The way we used to be, we were daily, moment by moment, trying to learn what was pleasing to the flesh, pleasing to us, whether that was indulging ourselves or what others might think of us so that we might please them, to indulge in our flattery, self-indulgence. We wanted the praise of men because we feared men. We were people pleasers. We wanted their adoration. We wanted them to like us. So we did whatever we felt like doing and we did whatever others wanted us to do because we were following the practices of the culture around us, the society around us, the world around us, just like the sons of Israel followed the Canaanites. Instead of rejecting the Canaanites, they participated. But now we are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Every thought, every word, every action of every day, of every moment of every day, we should be asking what is pleasing to the Lord. Not our knee-jerk responses, but what is pleasing to the Lord. Because self-control, according to Galatians 5, 22-23, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We should ask, what is pleasing to the Lord? If this is the gospel, or if this is the Jesus we have heard, then we have heard the true gospel. If you love me. If you love me. We continue. You will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. To keep the commandments means to obey the commandments. To keep the commandments. Keep is a synonym of the word to watch or to guard. To keep, to watch, to guard. Keep charge, watch, to make sure that we are careful about what we see and do, based on what we see, right? That's what it means to keep his commandments. It's, pract- it's a practical way, it's a metaphor for simply obeying God or obeying Christ, keeping my commandments, obeying Christ, doing the will of Christ. That's what he means by keep. Let's seek to show this in John, the book of John. John 3... John 3:36 John 3:36 336 He who believes in the Son has eternal life but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him We either believe or we disobey Those are the alternatives. We believe or we disobey. John chapter 8. John 8, 51. John 8, 51. Christ is embroiled in a controversy with people who claim to believe in Him, who think they believe in Him. But... In the middle of this controversy, they accuse him of being a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So then he says in verse 51, we pick up this exchange at verse 51. Notice how he says keep. He uses keep. 8.51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Keeps my word, never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon, Abraham died, and the prophets also, 
And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. See these false professions? They're saying, he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him, and if I say I, that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Christ keeps the word of the Father. Does that not include doing the will of, Father, the, will of the Father, doing everything the Father wants him to do? Whatever he wants him to say, whatever he wants him to do, Perfect obedience, godliness, righteousness, unblemished, unstained, pure Christ. No sin whatsoever, right? Perfection. The Father had words for Christ to keep. Christ obeyed or kept them. And he calls on his disciples to do the same. If anyone keeps my word, 51... Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. No death if we keep his word, because his words are the words of the Father. Unbelievers object and say, no, who are you? Who are you to speak of keeping his word or obedience? Who are you to obey? John 12, 47, 12 47. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The word is going to judge him. That's what he means in verse 47. He won't judge means the word he preached is going to judge him. Why? Because they would not keep his words. They would not obey his words. John 14, John 14, 21, John 14, 21, if we're not keepers, we are not lovers, 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 1523, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. If we keep his word, then he, Christ, and the Father will love the one who keeps his word. This is the only way. We must understand this doctrine. Okay, now, having said so, having said so, you will keep my commandments. What are the my commandments that must be kept? My commandments. Christ owns them. He calls them my commandments. Whatever we're talking about, we are talking about what he endorses, what he authors, what he inspires, they are his commandments. They belong to him, to him. Not to any man, but to the Lord Christ. Therefore, what are we talking about? What commandments do we mean? We're talking about the whole word of God. We're talking about the whole word of God. All of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Because the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets of Christ to preach the Word of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets of Christ to preach the Word of Christ. We know this from 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And that spirit was in the prophets. 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. That's all of the Old Testament. 
but also the New Testament. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says that the pastor is to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching, according to Acts 2.42, is the apostolic teaching. And the apostolic teaching is the teaching of Christ. Christ taught the apostles. That means we're talking about all of the New Testament. We are to obey in whatever sense, in whatever way, God means for us to keep or to obey the Bible. The, all of the Bible we are to obey. Those are the commandments of Christ. Having said that, it does not mean that every single thing has an element of current and modern practical obedience. We will come to explain that in just a moment. That doesn't mean that. But it does mean, when he's saying my commandments, we're talking about Christ owning all of the Bible. He owns all of the Bible because he is the Word, the infinite, eternal Word, the Word made flesh, who also announces his will, his mind, the mind of Christ, to the prophets of Christ and the apostles of Christ. That's what we should obey. This is all summarized in 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The commandment also spoken by of the, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Christ is the owner of every word of the Holy Bible. He is the owner. They are his commandments. Therefore, we must treat all of his commandments in the proper way. We also notice that they are called commandments. Commandments. They are not called recommendations. They're not called a bit of good advice. They're not called suggestions. They're not called preferences. They're not called opinions. They're not called anything like that, right? They are called commandments. When we approach the Word of Christ, we cannot approach it the way we approach what we might ask our friend, what we might ask or read on the Internet, what we might read in a book. That's not the same way. We should not look at it the same way. We must look at the words of Christ as commandments, a command. Everyone understands what a command is, correct? We should understand when parents command their children, do they negotiate? Are they supposed to negotiate? Are they supposed to strike a deal? Do they sit at the table with their parents and say, listen, let's sit across the table and let's hash this out. We're talking about five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, those who are under the authority of their parents in the, in the household. Do they negotiate? No, they don't negotiate. They know when the parent commands something that they ought to do it. The same works for the employer and the employee. Do employees, when, the, when something is issued from above, are the employees supposed to say, no, listen, listen, I know better than you. I know how to run this company. So let's sit down at the table. Let me give you my ideas. Now, it's one thing if the owner of the company asks for feedback we're not talking about that. We're talking about the way to run the business. If the owner of the company says, this is what we need to do, this is the way it works, this is the way it is safe, this is the way that it is productive, this is what we're going to do, the employee says, yes, sir, and goes and does it. It's a command. The same works in the military with soldiers and their commanders. They're called commanders because they issue commands. Soldiers know, yes, sir. 
and they do what they are told. This is the way it works in life. So it's not a wrong thing, an evil thing, if we're talking about the commandments of Christ, our Lord and Savior. So why should that become a distasteful, detestable thing to people who claim to be Christians? Why should it become something bitter, sour, pukish to Christians to hear that Christ commands them? If it is that way to them, then they don't have a changed heart. It shouldn't be that way. These are commandments. Then how may we summarize these commandments? What are the commandments we are to obey? They can be summarized in various ways. Let's do so. Firstly, we could summarize these commandments with one commandment. That is, John 13, 34 to 35. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We might summarize his commandments in the plural with one commandment. Do you love one another? And if you love one another, then you show that you are his disciples. We could also go to 1 John 4, 20 to 21. 1 John 4, 20 to 21 to summarize this one commandment. 4, 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Here too, the one commandment is the evidence that there is a superior commandment that is being followed. I love God. We could also say, if there is one commandment we should follow, it is that we should love God. That is the superior, supreme, greatest commandment. Mark 12, 28 to 34 explains that that is the great and foremost commandment. Mark 12, 28 to 34. And even the unbelieving, unbelieving doctor, unbelieving teacher, scribe, he understood that that was the case, and Jesus commended him for that and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So, that is another way to summarize it. What is the one commandment we should follow? Love God. Isn't that Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot love God and mammon. So we could say, if we love God, then we are keeping the commandments of Christ. That's another way to summarize it. These are ways to summarize it and to understand and to understand the foundations. But these are not exhaustive. These are not exhaustive. And this is where the problem resides. We need to know specifically. We need to know details. We need to have particulars. We need someone to specify, okay, well, these two persons both claim to love God, both claim to be Christians, but their values are opposites. Their values contradict each other. How can I know that the one's claim is true and the other one's is false? Or perhaps even both of them are false. But if both are true, then they're not going to contradict each other. Right? How can I know that one or the other is wrong or that both are wrong? How can I know who's telling the truth? I love God. Because they might say I love God and do wrong. One says he loves God and avoids church. Another says he loves God and says, no, no, you cannot avoid church. One says he loves God 
and wants to commit, let's say the man wants to commit fornication with the woman. They both say they love God. The man says he wants to do it. The woman says, no, no, we can't do that. Who's right? Who's right? They both say they love God. Who is right? You see how we need specifics? We need particulars. We need to know exactly how to do it. Where do we find them? The next summary of particulars is in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments teach us in the first four commandments how to love God. The last six commandments how to love our neighbor as ourself. The two greatest commandments. The Ten Commandments specify. But then... The Ten Commandments, though they specify more so than the two greatest commandments, they still do not present scenarios, common scenarios of life that need to have greater specificity, greater understanding on how to handle it. For example, when it says, you shall not murder. Though it says you shall not murder, and most of us understand, generally speaking, what it means not to murder, still, when a controversy arises, how about when an accidental death arises? Is that murder? Some say yes, others say no. How can we know? Well, we need other laws to specify and explain that accidental death is not the same as murder. Or what about a soldier? What if a soldier on the battlefield kills the enemy? Has he murdered the enemy? Has he broken that commandment? A soldier. Let's assume that the war is a valid, legitimate war. That a foreign country has invaded. And so the soldier, the Christian soldier in one's country that was invaded is seeking to defend his country and he kills the foreign soldier. Has he committed murder? We need to know the answer to these questions. Well, that's where the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament come to play and explain what murder is and what murder is not. What it is and what it is not. And in that case also, it's not murder to kill a foreign enemy. On the battlefield, it's not murder. Also, one might ask, well, what about all of the dietary and ritualistic laws of the Old Testament? Are those applicable or not? And the answer is no. A good place to do a study of this would be Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. That would be one central place to study. There he argues, chapter after chapter, for the abolition of the Old Testament ritual law. That means that God does not now require us to bring an animal or a grain offering for our sins. Constantly to the temple, present our animals, our sacrifices to the priests, in order for us to be in the right before God. It does not require that anymore. God does not require it. The scripture explains that. Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. Because of the sacrifice of Christ. You see, so whatever the Bible teaches in relation to the two greatest commandments, the Ten Commandments, with the exclusion of the ritual law, this is what we are to retain and to maintain. The best, another way to summarize it is, whatever Christ and his apostles have said in the New Testament as to what applies and what does not apply anymore, that is what we should obey. Whether those commandments are found in the Old Testament or New Testament. It does not do to say whatever is in the New Testament, we should obey. But if it's not in the New Testament, we should not obey. That interpretation or that logic does not work. It does not work. To illustrate, nowhere does the New Testament forbid 
um, a man or a woman having sexual relations with an animal. Nowhere does it forbid it. The New Testament does not. Does that mean that that's okay today in the New Testament? No. For us to find that prohibition, we have to go to the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, chapters 18 and 20, in order to show that that is sin, that is wrong, that is impossible. There are many such examples where we have to go to the Old Testament to to show forth those truths. Also, in the New Testament, there are some things that are in the New Testament that we don't find explicitly in the Old, but implicitly they were true in the Old also. For example, is it wrong, is it a sin for a woman to be with a woman, for a woman to marry a woman? Is it a sin? Yes, but only the New Testament says so in Romans 1, 26 to 27. Romans 1, 26 to 27 says so. Does that mean that it was permitted in the Old Testament? No, not at all. By implication, Genesis chapter 2 and many other passages, if a man is to marry a woman, then a man is not to marry a man, which the Old Testament says explicitly, Leviticus 18 and 20, and a woman is not to marry a woman. By implication, if a man is to marry a woman, Genesis 2. You see how by implication, so we must practice some um, implicatory theology, as it's called. We have to practice some of that to understand that which the Bible does not say explicitly, but implicitly for today. These are the commandments we must obey. And we are seeking to be faithful, humbly seeking to know and be faithful in this way once we are converted, once we belong to Christ. We are seeking, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's keep his commandments because we love him. We want to keep his commandments. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.